I would regularly step in and serve as the advocate for my family members. But every single time I would do it, I would immediately think, what does everyone else do? People who have no physician in the family, they don't know to ask about that IV fluid that you knew was supposed to be started in the emergency room and now 18 hours later, it's still not hanging. And I just would feel really bad and I would feel scared for everyone else. And so I said, somehow I need to help the people who don't have a Dr. Rochester in their family. Hi everyone, this is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode is sponsored by Mediterranean ALF, a family-owned and operated boutique-assisted living facility located in the heart of Palm Beach County, Florida. At Mediterranean ALF, you can rest easy knowing your family member is receiving affordable 24-hour care in a safe, home-like environment. Dr. Nicole Rochester is a board-certified pediatrician who's been practicing medicine for almost two decades. She's not only passionate about her work as a pediatrician, but about educating and empowering caregivers. As the only physician in her family, Dr. Rochester has served as interpreter and patient advocate for several family members during critical and sometimes frustrating encounters with healthcare professionals. Her website, yourgpsdoc.com, is all about, quote, helping you navigate the healthcare system one step at a time. We're going to get some great information here, folks, and I'm so happy to welcome you, Dr. Nicole Rochester. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jan. I'm happy to be here. From your website, I can see you attended Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. You earned your medical degree from the University of Maryland, and then you did your pediatric residency training at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Am I safe in assuming you're a D.C. native? Yes, you are absolutely correct. Born in in Washington, D.C. and raised in Prince George's County, Maryland. Tell us about your background and your family life growing up. So growing up, I have had three siblings. There were four of us growing up, and my uh, oldest two sisters uh, are one year apart, and then there's a six-year gap, and then my brother and I are one year apart. And um, unfortunately, my parents were divorced when I was pretty young. I was around five years old Mm -hmm. when they were divorced, and interestingly, we ended up living with my dad. So um, Mm -hmm. my dad dad was our custodial parent, and we saw my mom regularly every, every weekend, so we had a great relationship with her. And then several years later, my father remarried. And so I have another sister through my father and my stepmother. Okay. Um, I was so sorry to read of your mom's passing from leukemia. That was probably a while ago, uh, as I understand it. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that and the timing? Definitely. Yeah, you you seem to regret that you were unable to care for her as you wished to. Just talk about that, if you will. Sure. So, yeah, so my mother was diagnosed with leukemia, um, I think right during the right after, right before I started medical school, interestingly, and um, she passed away unfortunately in June of 1995, mm-hmm. and that was right towards the end of my second year of medical school. So things have changed a lot now, but yeah. back then the first two years of medical school were all intensive lectures and um, you know exams. And so it was a very, and it just so happens that I was studying for my board exams that I had to take and you have to pass that in order to 
uh, progress to third year, which is where you get to do all the fun stuff and Uh actually start taking care of patients. Uh, Incidentally, I was also a new mom. So I had had my daughter exactly two months before my mother passed away. So there was a lot going on in my life. And, um, and yeah, I just, I didn't know a lot at that time. I was a medical student. So I knew, you know, just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I contrast that to years later with my dad. And so looking back, I just feel like I wish I had known more. I mean, I, I do think that she got excellent care, but I just don't know what things have gone differently if I had the knowledge that I have now. Mm-hmm. And so how long was she sick? How does she, leukemia she, progress? She actually, it's really interesting. She went to her primary care doctor at the time, just kind of complaining of some fatigue. Mm-hmm. And this brilliant family medicine doctor, before he had done any laboratory studies or any radiologic studies, just by palpating her abdomen, felt that her spleen was enlarged. And so if I remember correctly, he actually told her before she left the office that he thought she had leukemia. And wow. this is before she even saw a specialist. And unfortunately, that diagnosis was confirmed. Mm. And um, she was she was sick for a while. And, and then, uh, you know, they tried some um, chemotherapy and, and that wasn't really successful. And then the only cure is a bone marrow transplant. And mm. so there wasn't a match in the National Bone Marrow Registry. And unfortunately, none of the children were a match. And so um, at that point, they decided to do what's called a stem cell transplant, mm-hmm. where they actually took her own cells and kind of irradiated them and killed off everything and then gave them back to her. Hmm. And so that procedure, you know, you're in a ward where, you know, you're, you're completely vulnerable to infections. They pretty much wipe out your immune system. Hmm. So she was in the hospital for quite a while after that. But ultimately, did well and was in remission. And so came home and was in remission and, and felt great. And we were all very helpful. And then let's see, I think maybe within nine months to a year after she went into remission, it came back just like worse than ever. Mm-hmm. And um, and then from then she, she deteriorated uh, pretty quickly. Mm. She must have been young. She was, she was 49 when she passed oh, away. Oh my gosh, very I'm so young. sorry. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much. Who cared for her during that time? Well, you know, it's interesting. She, outside of her hospitalization, she actually was, um, you know, she was mobile. She never was in a wheelchair. She didn't mm-hmm. need a walker. Mm-hmm. So she was able to be home with, with her husband, my stepfather. And I was living in Baltimore at the time, but would come home frequently on weekends. And then at, at one point, my oldest sister lived in the home. But we really, I can't really say we were her caregivers per se. She mm-hmm. did require transportation to appointments and things like that. But other than that, you know, except for when she was maybe really ill after a chemotherapy session, she was able to make her own meals and, you know, move around the house and bathe herself and clothe herself and all of those things. Wow. So your dad is still living? No. So actually, my dad passed away in 2013. Oh, okay. That's recent. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was so touched in reading on your blog about how your dad treasured his used Mercedes. <laughs> and <laughs> my mom had an old, also a, an old Mercedes. It was her only car for like 30 years. 
Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was old 300 SD turbo diesel. And and I used to say when it started up, it was like a dog choking on a bone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she loved that thing. But yes. it was so touching to read about that. And, and I wondered what issues came up for you when you and he realized he could no longer drive. Because this relates to one of your posts about what are some of the options to consider when you're coordinating non-emergency medical transportation? Yes, that was very difficult. And I think that was, you know, probably one of the first of many things that he ended up, you know, kind of giving up in terms of not not having the independence Mm -hmm. that he used to treasure. Uh, If I remember correctly, that was one of the earliest things is his inability to drive. And, um, you know, my father was a a police officer. Mm -hmm. Um, He was retired at Mm -hmm. the time Mm -hmm. that he became ill, but he was a retired police officer. And avid traveler. And so he was, you know, very he's a avid Redskins fan and oh, yeah. had seasons tickets at the, for the Redskins. And Did he so, have a hawk nose? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't go that far. No, he didn't go that far. But Sorry, lots a little lots of inside DC humor here. Sorry, folks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so it was it was a really a big deal. And I think I think for any man, you know, I, I, I would imagine that um, losing your independence when you become ill is probably more difficult for for males yeah. um, than it is for females. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then having to depend on his children, um, you know, later he expressed to us that that was very difficult for him. Mm. Um, and of course, we would always respond with, you know, that of course we would do that. I mean, you raised us, you loved us. Yeah. Um, but but often he would kind of remark, you know, I wish I could do these things myself, and it's not fair that you know, I have to burden you all with this. So that, that of course made us pretty sad. Mm-hmm. What was his illness or if you, so he to... had a lot of, he had hypertension mm-hmm. and diabetes and heart disease and, you know, all, all of the things that often, unfortunately accompany African-American men. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, honestly, he did not take good care of himself. He was mm-hmm. um, probably in his forties when he was diagnosed um, with diabetes and mm-hmm. I think the hypertension came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And at that time he felt great. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he uh, didn't take his medications the way he should, didn't modify his diet the way that he should have. But, you know, like, like these chronic illnesses, he continued to feel well until right. he did it. And so right. it, it wasn't until his sixties that all of these things started to catch up with him. And he also started to develop some dementia as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm. How did you respond to seeing him uh, as he was developing dementia? What was that? Was that what was that like for you? That was very difficult. And um, I don't know. I feel like he never really got a clear diagnosis. I mean, uh-huh. we, we knew that things were were not right. I mean, there were some instances that were triggered by like some derangements, you know, with blood sugar being really high. So mm-hmm. those would correct themselves when he would um, get the appropriate therapy. Right. But we, you know, we, we took him to many neurologists because he, he developed this weakness of unexplained etiology. And, hmm. you know, ultimately he went from, you know, walking on his own to needing a walker or a cane and then a walker and then mm-hmm. a wheelchair. Um, but, you know, multiple neurologists would examine him and no, no one could really figure out why he was so weak. And in terms of the dementia, you know, he had uh, several CAT scans and MRI scans and they would just kind of show what they said were chronic changes related to, you know, diabetes and hypertension. Hmm. Um, but there wasn't really a clear diagnosis. But it was it was really difficult to see this formerly, you know, strong man just kind of diminished to someone who really couldn't reliably care for himself. 
Uh-huh. Did you find yourself treating him differently? Um, I mean, I think so. You know, you, you go from the, it's like you feel like you become the parent, you yeah. know, and, and they become the child. And honestly, I mean, I already had taken on <laughs> somewhat of a parent role just in terms of, um, you know, lecturing him about taking his medication. Right. And, you know, if I would see him eating chocolate cake, for example, at a family gathering, you know, <laughs> I would lecture lecture him about that. So I had already felt like I had taken on a little bit of that, but that was more in jest. But when he became ill, you know, it was it was required. Um, and, yeah. and that was that was that was pretty hard to go through. Yeah, you don't really I can expect imagine. that you're going to change roles like that. Yeah, you really it's pretty sudden, huh, too. It feels like, oh, where did this come from? And there's yes. no going back. <laughs> So you have this wonderful website where you give folks all kinds of information from your inside knowledge of, of being a physician. Uh, tell us why you started down this path of helping folks outside of your practice and sort of how you got to that point. Yeah, it's really interesting um, because what I'm doing now and the, you know, the website, you probably noticed at this point, it has absolutely no pediatric content at all. Right. And yet, and yet I'm a pediatrician in my daily life. Mm -hmm. So this is totally inspired by my experiences with my family members who are, you know, happen to all be adults because luckily we don't have any children in my family who have suffered any catastrophic illnesses. So, so mm -hmm. um, I just, over the years, going back to dealing with my dad over several years with his dementia and being a dialysis patient mm -hmm. and in and out of hospitals. And ultimately we um, moved him into an assisted living facility and he was in and out of a few nursing homes towards the end. And then I have um, other family members with chronic illnesses, all of which have passed away at this point. And just being in the hospital setting with them and regularly finding either medical errors or lapses in communication or, you know, judgment errors or information that was incorrect. You know, I would regularly kind of step in and serve as the advocate for my family members. But every single time I would do it, I would immediately think, what does everyone else do? People who have no physician in the family, they don't know to ask about that IV fluid that you knew was supposed to be started in the emergency room. And now 18 hours later, it's still not hanging. You know, there were just things like that. Where, and I just would feel really bad and I would feel scared for everyone else. And so I said years ago, somehow I need to help the people who don't have a Dr. Rochester in their family. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, with my full time medical practice and children and husband and all the other activities, it just, it was in the back of my mind, but I didn't really know how I was going to go about doing it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, it's, it's weird. I, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. And mm -hmm. all I can really say is that it was God because I just kept getting these messages, just cryptic messages, not like literally messages, but I mean, some article would pop up in my newsfeed on Facebook, or I'd have some random conversation with someone, or I would, you know, read about on Facebook about someone saying, you know, I had this horrible experience and my grandmother was in the hospital and nobody would talk to us and I have no idea what's going on. Hmm. And these scenarios just kept presenting themselves to me. And um, I actually had emergency gallbladder surgery back oh. in May oh, wow. of 2016. So for the first time in a long time, I had like an unplanned vacation because, you know, doctors don't really take off. We just <laughs> right. go into work sick. So this was the one time when I could not go into work sick. And so I was home for a week. And so it was during that week, I just kind of, I don't know, I just started researching it. And I was like, I really need to do that. And, and the need just became more pressing. And so I just decided, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to make a website. And then I started talking about it with my husband and uh -huh. my family members. And, you know, we played around with different names and 
logo ideas and finally it's come to fruition. That's really great. It's interesting when you were speaking earlier about those who aren't physicians as you are being unlikely to ask the kind of question that you posed. I think that that folks who have or who are advocates for their family members in the hospital will ask that question. They just won't know to ask the follow-up question. Like That's would, a great point. You Diana. would know yes. that. You would know that, Dr. Rochester, but I mean when I'm in the hospital, I'm a I was a hands-on advocate for my mom and I often think what do folks do who don't have family members as advocates? Which leads me to a question that I have for you because you discussed the importance of family meetings. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of family meetings when someone's hospitalized and what happens when family members resist or if there's only one family member participating? That's a great question. Family meetings are absolutely critical. And I think that, you know, there's actually literature that suggests um, in ICU settings, intensive care settings, where it's probably the most important. Mm -hmm. I think I read an article recently that says it happens about 20 percent of the time. And so in in my case, I found that they only happen when I ask for one. You know, it's unfortunately it's Hmm. not it's not necessarily routine in all institutions, but it's really the, the only way particularly when you have a family member that's very ill or a family member that has lots of medical problems that are being managed by multiple providers. Uh It's the only way to get everyone in the room. Uh And my experience has been both as a physician and as a caregiver has been that when there are multiple chefs in the kitchen, they're not always talking to each other. And so one doctor will come, the orthopedic doctor will come and that person will, you know, leave a note in the chart about what should be done for the bone. And then the nephrologist will come in and leave a note about what should be done for the kidneys and the cardiologist comes in, but none of those providers are talking in the same room. And sometimes what has been recommended by one provider is absolutely contraindicated, you know, by another provider or medication that one person is recommending, you know, is really not the best thing because of the five other conditions. But, but even more than that, it's just the family has no idea. You're, you know, you're, you're, you may be in the hospital all day long, but you miss the provider, you know, you go to the cafeteria and you come back and find out, oh, you just missed the cardiologist. Right. And getting, getting doctors on the phone is extremely difficult. Oh, yeah. and I have had some positive experiences where I've left my name and number and the doctor has called me back even after hours. But I'll be honest, you know, in general, I don't use my title. And, and early on when my family members were ill, I, I did not, I never would mention that I was a doctor. And it wasn't until I started getting really frustrated mm-hmm. that I would start to use my title. And so I always wondered, you know, when they're calling me back at eight o'clock at night on my cell phone, I always wondered, are they doing that because I said, you know, this, <laughs> Dr. Is, this is Dr. Rochester, or yeah. are they doing that because I'm a, fa- a family member uh-huh. who's concerned? But the family meeting really just allows everyone who, you know, anyone who wants to attend from, on the, from the family's perspective. And then, you know, hopefully the doctors that are all taking care of the patients and nurses and, you know, the physical therapists, it allows a, an opportunity for everyone to sit around the table so that concerns can be expressed. And I've discovered that that's when there's additional history that sometimes comes out about the family member that no one knew. You know, you can only document so much in a history and physical, mm-hmm. but some of those important social history, you know, what this person, their family life and how their home is set up and, you know, things that are really important, Mm -hmm. those things don't always come out. And so I I think they're necessary. I don't don't even think that they, I wouldn't even call them optional. I think that they are absolutely necessary. How do you get all those people in the same room if you can't even get a doctor to return your call? (laughs) Well, (laughs) from a practical point of view. Yeah, it's it's a really good point. And honestly, it, it doesn't always work out. You know, sometimes what happens is you'll get 
the primary attending who's in charge of the right. case and, and you may get one of the specialists or maybe the resident on the team. And then sometimes they'll say, like, I'm really sorry, you know, Dr. So-and-so wasn't able to make it. And hopefully they will at least take that information back. But in an ideal world, I've seen case managers do this very well, where they kind of, you know, find out the family's availability and then they kind of take on that role of contacting the providers. I've also seen sometimes the nursing staff will take that on, mm-hmm. but it is very difficult. I, I don't want to imply that this is an easy task. Right. In one of your blog posts, you wrote about a family meeting when your mother-in-law was hospitalized with severe pneumonia. I thought this was so interesting. <laughs> Could you talk about that aside that one of the doctors made in writing? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So we were in the hospital and she was there for pneumonia, but she had some type of pre at that point it had not been diagnosed she had some type of underlying lung problem and um and so she was incredibly sick and in the intensive care unit and they really couldn't figure out what was wrong with her um it was clear that it was more than pneumonia but you know she wasn't in uh like a state of the art tertiary care facility and so i was very concerned that it was possible she wasn't getting the care that she needed and that maybe we needed to get more people on her case and, you know, specialists and, th- and people that may be able to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. So I requested a family meeting and my husband and myself and my brother-in-law and his wife and my father-in-law convened in this room along with a couple of members of the medical team. And so as I was asking questions about, you know, what do you think is going on with her? You know, why isn't she getting better? What medications are you giving her? What's the plan? what specialists are involved. And I was on one side of the room and my sister-in-law was on the other side of the room. And she saw one of the doctors write the word high maintenance on a piece of paper (laughs) and kind of turn it sideways to show the doctor next to her. (laughs) And so after the meeting was over and we were walking back to my mother-in-law's room, she said, what does high maintenance mean? (laughs) And I didn't know, I didn't know if I should laugh or be angry or... So I thought, oh, wow, okay, I've been described as high maintenance. Yeah, I would have done done a fist bump with my sister. Yes. Absolutely. It was meant to be an insult, but it's a positive thing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Coming up after the break, how Dr. Rochester handles family members who are vocal and how a small change in the way she ends her interactions with patients and family members wound up leading to more productive hospital visits for everyone. Support for the AgeWise podcast comes from Mediterranean ALF, a family-owned and operated six-bed facility located in the heart of Palm Beach County, Florida. An alternative to traditional living facilities, Mediterranean ALF offers boutique-style accommodations where residents receive personalized care tailored to their needs in an environment that feels like home. Rest easy knowing your family member is being attended to 24 hours a day by highly trained, caring staff. To schedule a private tour, call 561-644-2353. Well, what have you observed in your practice about folks who speak up? And I love that story that you share with us. Is it a good example of how hospital staff sees caregivers like you? Or what does that reflect about the staff and how they... I mean, it's a delicate balance, and I appreciate that. I'm not here to trash hospital staff. Um, Me either. I am one. (laughs) Yeah, because you are one, right? Of course. (laughs) So, So what are some of the other things you've observed in your practice about speaking up? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, I will be very honest and tell you that as a physician, 
there are definitely times when you become annoyed with family members. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's just the honest truth. And I will also be honest and say that, you know, there are instances when there are family members that are very vocal. And I think the natural reaction sometimes is to not want to talk to that person, mm-hmm. um, which is the absolute wrong thing to do. For me personally, I generally do very well with that as long as they are, are speaking to me in a respectful manner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes, and, and I understand, you know, sometimes people are just very upset, they're frustrated, they're grieving. And so sometimes the communication, unfortunately, between doctors and patients or doctors and caregivers can go awry and mm-hmm. they can become hostile even. And that's never productive for either party. But I actually enjoy questions. And so I've always asked parents and families at the end of, you know, after I admit a patient, I've always asked, you know, do you have any questions? But just in the last two years of my practice, and I can't remember where I picked this up, but I either read it or I saw someone do it. And they said, what questions do you have for me? And so Hmm. literally for the last two to three years, I've shifted my dialogue and I, I end every encounter with what questions do you have? And you'd be surprised that just changing it from do you have questions to what questions do you have, right. it, it opens it up. It, you're expecting them to ask a question. And right. I can definitely tell you that I get a lot more questions now that I say, what questions do you have? Whereas before, when I would say everything I had to say and try to explain the illness as well as I could and then say, so do you have any questions? Many times the parents would say, nope, I think you've already answered everything. Yeah. Um, hmm. But so, so I actually and I enjoy questions. For me, that's an opportunity for me to explain things to the parent. And sometimes it brings things to my attention that I may have forgotten Mm -hmm. to mention. You know, often the questions are are really good. In fact, usually they are. But I think the reality is that many um, doctors, particularly in the hospital setting, um, they feel pressed for time. They may have large patient loads. And so everyone goes into medicine to care, you know, to care, to heal, to help. But the reality of our actual um, work conditions are such that I think, unfortunately, Due to this feeling that I don't have time, you feel like when someone, when a family member starts to ask, you know, multiple questions, I think many doctors feel like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm about to be trapped in this room and I have six other patients to see and I have a conference at noon. And, and so I think, unfortunately, the response isn't always positive. And, and I definitely have heard the word high maintenance used. And, you know, honestly, it's possible that I've used that word in uh-huh. my career. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was a little bit funny that I was being called, you know, the high maintenance family member. <laughs> well, you've been on both sides of that table, but I think maybe yes. you you have doctor training in your future <laughs> too. <laughs> maybe I like that. Well, no, I think that from what I've read, the the just barrage of paperwork that physicians have to deal with is one of the reasons why a lot of people are turned off to medicine, and one of the complications. And I. I know from my own experience, I, even I've talked about this with my mom's doctor it's, and even my own, that, you know, there's just so much paperwork to fill out nowadays that it's getting, yes. it's, got, it's gotten really frustrating and it's hard to practice. So that's uh, absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I can see both sides. Um, so explain for our listeners what a hospitalist is. So a hospitalist is a physician who spends the majority of his or her clinical practice taking care of hospitalized patients. Um, And that term was coined by Robert Wachter. He's like kind of like the first 
he's coined as like the father of hospital medicine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, historically, the model has been that you're a primary care physician, you have a patient that's in the hospital, either in the morning before you go into your office or in the afternoon during your lunch break, you would drive over to the hospital, see that patient, you know, write some orders, and then leave and go back to your office. And that was kind of the traditional medical model. And for many reasons, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, that model is just no longer efficient. You know, hospitals have changed and finances have changed. And it's much more important to get patients in and out of the hospital efficiently. And honestly, the the medicine has changed. You know, these days, the patients that are hospitalized are much sicker than patients that were hospitalized years ago. You know, as an example, Hmm. my oldest sister had an umbilical hernia repaired and she was in the hospital, I think she told me for like five days. Oh my. Or or even my gallbladder is a perfect example. Both of my sisters had their gallbladders out and they're only six years older than me and they were both in the hospital for, you know, at least three days. And I literally had my surgery at 7.30 in the morning and by four o'clock in the afternoon, I was being wheeled to my car. Wow. (laughs) So, um, so, by, so by definition, you know, so much more is being managed in the outpatient setting that the patients that are in the hospital are very sick. And so there's actually a, a different set of knowledge that one needs these days to practice hospital medicine. And so I think over time, many of the primary care doctors started to feel it's hard to keep up with, you know, all the new things that are going on in the hospital setting and, and still keep up with what I need to know for my, for my outpatient practice and even financially for them, it's very inefficient to have to leave your office for a couple of hours and then come back. And that's time that can be spent seeing patients, which if you're a primary care doctor, you know, that's more revenue. So for many different reasons, we've kind of evolved into this hospital model. And, you know, there are definitely positives and negatives to um, having a hospitalist care for you in the hospital setting. I am, I'm a hospitalist and I love it. It gives me a lot of variety in my day. I personally like the flexibility with not only my schedule, but actually being able to kind of sit and talk with my patients. And Mm -hmm. I can go back an hour later and see how they're doing. I can go back three hours later and see how they're doing. I can sit in my office and think about what's going on with them. I can get on my computer. So it's very different than having like a 15 minute encounter in the hospital. So you're but only the, you're in the hospital all the time. You you're not yes, in a, Okay, am, so you're exclusively. That's that's sort of the distinguishing yes. feature. Okay, I got And it. there are some who do both. There are some people who maybe spend, you know, half of the time in the outpatient setting and half of the time in the inpatient setting, mm-hmm. but generally more and more hospitalists today spend, I would say, you know, 75 to 100% of their clinical practice in the hospital. Mhm. So what's the deal with patients that get discharged without any instructions? <laughs> since I have a, 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 since you're a doctor and I have a, do- this is a rarity. So for just indulge me, Dr. Rochester. Sure. When, I think that um, one of the biggest issues for caregivers in the hospital setting is that there it's a real hit or miss thing when you leave with a family member. Mm-hmm. You, sometimes you get instructions, sometimes you don't. Why is there such a lack of uniformity around that? It seems like it would be so helpful for people to get clear instructions to prevent the patients from coming back in. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I'm concerned to hear you say that you've had experiences where you weren't given any discharge instructions. I think my experience, both as a physician and as a a family member caregiver, is that the instructions have been woefully inadequate. Um, right. I'll I'll amend that if that's what I said. <laughs> I will say that they have maybe been written on a piece of paper. 
Oh, wow. Uh, that sort okay. of thing. I've gotten minimal instructions, but wow. I certainly never, I don't think, gotten questions like, what questions do you have for me? I don't think I can remember ever getting a question like that. And I'm, not, wow. I'm not saying that this the experience was bad necessarily. Yes. The actual hospital experience was bad. But everything that you've talked about so far, I think I've been through. I've been through it being in the hospital with my mom who was going to be prescribed Percocet. But had I not been there to say, oh, no, no, she has a bad reaction to that, then, oh then it would have been given to her. So, I've, you know, there's been a random situations like that where I was glad I was there. And I wonder how do folks who don't have advocates do it to being like just kind of scattershot in the discharge. You don't know when you're going to leave. It's, oh, it's going to be between three and eight or we don't know yet. And it just seems really yes. kind of hit or miss. Well, let me just say that that's not acceptable, obviously, mm-hmm. and, you, and you know that. I think there's so much variability because, I don't know, there's not a lot of standardization. Uh-huh. I, I will say that while I am not a 100% fan of the electronic medical record, I'm a very fast typer. My handwriting has actually deteriorated over the years. So I love being on the computer. And so I, I was a big advocate for the electronic medical record. Unfortunately, it has fallen short in many areas. And I think most of us providers feel that it's not really built with us in mind and with patient care in mind. But having said that, hmm. one of the benefits, I think, is that there are kind of standardized processes. And so I know at the hospital where I work, for example, a patient can't leave the hospital without you know, the discharge summary. They call it DPART in our particular electronic medical record. But that process has to happen before they can even discharge the patient from the system. Now, again, the quality of those instructions is going to vary. And I think in some instances, I think the nurses, you know, can kind of click through and choose. I mean, there's literally thousands of different educational materials that can be sent home with the patient. And it's generally by diagnosis. So they can literally scroll through and click, you know, asthma, pneumonia, and then these reams of paper (laughs) print out with instructions. But then in other cases, it really is up to the physician to provide those specific instructions. You know, what what are the things that the patient can and cannot do? You know, when can the patient resume normal activity? When do you want them to follow up with their primary care doctor? And a lot of the electronic medical records, there's kind of these generic fill-ins. You know, like for example, it just says, you know, see your doctor within one week. And that will auto-populate if you don't take the time to actually put in something different. And oh, so wow. again, with the fast-paced environment, yeah. you know, many people just, they just leave the generic, see your doctor in a week and all the other generic things that auto-populate where you really do have the ability to go in and make it very specific to your patient. But I think a lot of people don't take the time to do it, don't feel like they have the time to do it. But you bring up a good point. I mean, if you don't have adequate discharge instructions, then that, that patient is more likely to present again to your hospital and you know, possibly even require a readmission, which is looked on in a very poor light by the Joint Commission and other regulatory organizations. So I think there's been some improvement in that, primarily because of the regulatory agencies and the penalties that hospitals are going to face in the future for readmissions. I mean, that all of that, I think all of this is going to change, well, maybe, with some of the healthcare reform. Maybe. Yeah. We'll Operative word. So... <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you're worried about uh, in particular? Oh my gosh, I'm extremely worried. I um I see a lot of patients who 
are uninsured. I take care of a lot of patients who have Medicaid. I take care of a lot of patients who are recent immigrants Mm -hmm. and have great difficulty navigating the healthcare system. And the Affordable Care Act, from my vantage point, has Mm -hmm. been incredible. It's not without flaws. But, you know, it's insured literally millions of Americans who otherwise would not have health insurance. And so I'm I'm very worried about the future. And I'm just I I really hope that that they'll take a thoughtful approach to health care reform and that that they won't just, you know, get rid of something that really is a safety net for millions of Americans. Mm hmm. So you've been practicing for a while now. What changes have you noticed, if you can think of anything specific, what changes have you noticed in the healthcare system in terms of its effect on families? I think in many ways, the healthcare is better. I think that there's a lot more standardization of care so that patients who have a heart attack, for example, they, you know, there are standards and you should receive aspirin within this amount of time and you should, you know, go to the cardiac cath lab within this amount of time. And patients who have pneumonia should get their antibiotics within this amount of time in the emergency room. And so I think that there's been a lot in the field of quality improvement in Mm -hmm. medicine. Now, granted, there's been a lot of resistance because everyone thinks that the way that they've been doing it for the last 30 years is the best way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's definitely a lot of resistance there. But more and more, I think physicians are buying into that. And so, you know, as a result, ideally, patients are receiving standardized care that has been researched and that is evidence-based and that we know is superior to some of the other therapies. Um, So I think that's a huge plus. I think there's a huge focus on errors and, you know, preventable deaths. And so, you know, I think that's also very important. I think, unfortunately, in terms of the interpersonal nature of medicine, I think that that is suffering. And I think that's the reason why many physicians are not as happy with going into medicine as they used to be. I think many people feel like, you know, because of actually because of some of the rules and regulations and, you know, checking the boxes. Right. And also because of the electronic medical record, you know, many feel like they aren't able to as easily connect with their patients because there's a laptop in the way or a Mm -hmm. tablet. And so even like eye contact, you know, they've shown is decreased because, you know, you're having to type while you're talking to the patient. Yeah. Personally, I so enjoy talking to patients and families that like I really get a high out of that. Yeah. And so I just I That's feel cool. I still I hope I, I consider myself kind of an old school doctor in mm-hmm. that sense. But it's very hard. I mean, I, I make sacrifices to do that. So it's not uncommon for me to go home at night and have to write all of my notes, uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, because I chose to spend my time doing other things. Uh-huh. So that part, I think, is probably one of the negatives. I think that there are many things that are preventing doctors from being able to connect with their patients in the way that we could, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh-huh. It's got to be fun working with kids, huh? And, and Oh, it's amazing. And can you share why you went into pediatrics as opposed to another branch of medicine? Sure. I've known I wanted to be a pediatrician since I was like eight or nine. And <laughs> really? I wow. think, yeah, I really cool. have. Cool. <laughs> and I think for me, it was a combination of always loving science and doing well in science and just being fascinated with the human body and illnesses and disease and, and a combination of that and children. You know, I, I was a babysitter and I worked at a, as a camp counselor for several years And so for me, it was kind of just combining those two natural loves of Mm -hmm. children and science and medicine and putting it together. I can honestly tell you that I would not have survived as 
a doctor for adult people. <laughs> because? <laughs> because adults, and, and again, this is based on my own family members, <laughs> adults just have a lot of baggage. You know, uh-huh. adults in general, we don't, I'm saying we now, we don't take care of ourselves properly. We, we know that we know what we need to do, yeah. but we, we know we choose not to do it for various reasons. And then we end up with these chronic health conditions and then still we don't follow the directions. And so it's just, I don't know, with kids, they're much more resilient. They can be incredibly ill. I mean, critically ill. And literally two days later, they're playing a video game in their bed. And Mm. so I just I like that. I feel like I have a greater opportunity to impact a child's life because they haven't ruined it with, you know, cigarettes and alcohol and drugs and bad food and all that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And they just get better. They get better almost always. And of course, there's bad outcomes, even in pediatrics. But for the most part, they get better and they're fun. I mean, they're incredibly fun. They're smart. And it's just a lot of fun. So how have you changed during the years you've practiced and been a caregiver? Wow. I, I That's a great question. I would like to think that I've always been compassionate, but I would also like to think that I'm even more compassionate now that I've experienced healthcare from both sides. But I think for me personally, even more than that, it's I have a better appreciation for what the family member goes through when they have someone in the hospital or when someone's really ill. And so I think I pick up on those cues a little bit more than mm-hmm. I did before my own family members were ill. I can kind of spot when a parent is looking incredibly worried, but not vocalizing that. And I'll mm. say things like, you seem really worried. Is there something you want to ask me? Or I'll say things like, what are you worried about the most tonight? You know, just to try to spark those conversations. So I think I'm a little more in tune with some of those nonverbal cues mm-hmm. and, and definitely just, I kind of actively explore the frustrations and the questions because I've had those myself. Mm -hmm. So you have kids. Tell us how old they are. I have a 16-year-old and a 21-year-old. My goodness. Are you training them yet on how to care for you when you get older? Well, (laughs) I'm a little worried, actually. They both told me they're going to put me in a nursing home. I think they're joking. (laughs) But neither of them is interested in medicine, and that's fine with me. But but we do have a lot of conversations, and they're very familiar with my website, and and they read my blog posts, and, you know, they've accompanied me to the hospital and were very much involved when my dad was sick. So I think they have a, a great understanding of the caregiver role. And, you know, hopefully they won't have to take on that role personally for many, many years. Many to years. Come. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. Do you have any final advice for caregivers or families? Uh, any last thoughts you'd like to share? Yeah, I think my advice to caregivers, it, I could, there's so many. One, I would say is trust your gut. And it's something that I also say to medical students and residents who are training to be doctors, trust your gut as a caregiver. You know, you know, your husband, your wife, your daughter, your grandmother, your mother, your father, you know, that person better than anybody else in that hospital. And so even if you can't find the words, even if you don't know the medical terms, if you feel like something's not right, then express that. And it's okay to say, I don't know what's going on, but this is not my grandma, you know, and, and, and then explain like, you know, just yesterday, my grandma was doing this. And so trust your gut is, I think, the first thing that I would say in terms of advice. The second thing I would say is don't be shy, you know, be high maintenance. I, I think it's great to be a quote, high maintenance caregiver. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, it doesn't mean being rude or being aggressive, but it means you're going to actively advocate for your family member. And so ask questions, ask what medications they're on and, and ask what the diagnosis is. And if they are using, you know, medical lingo and things that don't make sense to you, 
ask them to clarify those things and just make sure that you have a clear understanding of what's going on with your loved one. Also ask about discharge planning. Don't wait until the day that your loved one is going home. It's okay to start asking those questions from the beginning. When do you think he or she is going to be discharged? What are the needs that you're anticipating? Unfortunately, these things often don't come up until the 11th hour and then everyone's scrambling trying to figure out if the patient needs, you know, a home health nurse or a walker. And so it's really just, you know, learning how to take an active role as the caregiver and and asking those difficult questions. Have a notebook. You're never going to remember all of this stuff on your own. And so it's really important to, you know, just carry a notebook with you. Even when you think of questions, it may be three o'clock in the morning, you're at the bedside, you can't sleep, and three things pop into your head. Write that down in your notebook. And then when the when the providers come in the next morning, you know, you'll have those questions and you can ask those questions and write the answers down. And lastly, shameless plug, go to yourgpsdoc.com. <laughs> My goal is really, really to provide information. I'm putting out blog posts once a week. And ultimately, I'm not even sure how else this is going to expand. But I, I just really want to be that source of information. And I'm, I really try to present it from an insider's view. And I'm really excited about you know some of the articles that are going to be upcoming. And there's many other resources out there for caregivers and there's support groups. And so I guess that would be my, my last piece of advice is don't try to do this alone. If you're the only child and you don't have siblings, reach out to a cousin or a best friend. And even if they can't help you actively care for your loved one, even if it's just that's the person that you can vent to at night or that's the person that, you know, you can go have a bite to eat. But it's incredibly stressful and you have to have outlets and people in your life that can hug you and wipe your tears away and tell you that it's going to be okay. Dr. Nicole Rochester, she's a pediatrician, educator, interpreter, caregiver, and patient advocate. With her inside knowledge, she's helping you navigate the healthcare system. She mentioned her website, but I'm going to go ahead and remind you that we will have a link on the AgeWise website to Dr. Rochester's website where you can learn more about her work. But if you want to dive in right now, go to yourgpsdoc.com. That's Y-O-U-R-G-P-S-D-O-C.com and start taking advantage of Dr. Rochester's inside knowledge right now. Dr. Nicole Rochester, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been really fascinating chatting with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Jana. This has been wonderful. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We're taking a break for the holidays and we'll be back on Thursday, January 10, 2019 with all new episodes. In the meantime, if there's a topic you want to learn more about, use the search feature at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. Type in a few keywords and a list of episodes will pop up in which guests talk about your area of interest. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I'm Jana Panaritis. Have a wonderful holiday. And caregivers, please make time for yourself, even if it's just for an hour or two. I know it's tough to get away, but you spend so much time caring for others. This holiday season, please give yourself the gift of self-indulgence. Happy New Year, everyone. I'll see you in 2019.